0: Good evening, everyone. To begin with, if you'd like to join me with the uh, Refuges and Precepts on page 4. <coughs> Please repeat after me in the polyscriptural language.
1: Namo bhagavato ārahato sama sambuddhāsa Namo bhagavato ārahato sama sambuddhāsa <coughs> Namo tāsā bhagavato ārahato sama sambuddhāsa <coughs> <coughs> Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa <coughs> Namo tassa <coughs> bhagavato arahato
2: sammasambuddhassa
1: Bhutam saranam gacchami
2: Bhutam saranam
1: Dhamma sangha nangga chami.
2: Dhamma sangha sanam chami.
1: Sangha <clears throat> sangha nangga chami. Sangha sangha nangga chami.
2: chami. Duti Saranaṃ <infect up the> gacchami.
1: <Game> Do tiyampi dhammam. Saranaṃ gacchami. Do tiyampi dhammam. Saranaṃ gacchami.
2: Do tiyampi sangham. gacchami. Do tiyampi sangham. gacchami.
1: Tatiumpi, Budong Sarananga Chami. Tatiumpi,
2: Budong Sarananga
1: Chami. Tatiumpi, Dhammang Sarananga Chami.
2: Dhammang Sarananga
1: Tatiampi Sangham Saranam Gachami.
2: Tatiampi Sangham Saranam
3: Gachami.
0: This completes the going to the three refuges.
1: Please repeat Mm -hmm. after me in the Pali scriptural language. Pañatipada Dramini Sikathadam Samadhiyami. Panya Kipana, Brahmini Adina Samadhyami Adinadana, Brahmini Samadiami Samadhyami Adinadana, Brahmini
2: Sikapadam Samadhyami
1: Kamesu Michachara
2: Ramani
1: sakatadam dam samadi a me Please to meet your brother Ramani sakata dam samadi Musa Ramani Sura Mareya Maja Paratana, Ramani Sakapadam Ami Sura Mareya Maja Padatana Ramani
2: Sakapadam
0: Ami Please repeat after me in English. <coughs> I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings.
2: I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring
3: harm to other beings.
0: I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others.
2: I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will. Or taking satisfaction in
0: this I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others
2: I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others
0: I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others
2: I, I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and, and compassion. And
0: I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the eightfold path through daily study, meditation, and
1: reflection. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the eightfold path.
0: Daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these 10 precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue Good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. And may all beings be truly happy. So thank you. So I hope your day went well. I just want to ask if you were comfortable in here temperature-wise in the meditation hall. I thought it got a little warm in the middle of the day. Okay, so uh, did you open the dome? The dome can be be opened. That will help. And then the other thing that will help is to turn the evaporative cooler on, which you'd need to take those blankets that are stuffed up there out from in front of it. So... It's supposed to be. It wasn't very warm today. It was supposed to be warmer tomorrow, but it's supposed to be windy too. So I don't know how that's going to balance out in terms of temperature. But I want you all to be comfortable so that you can concentrate on your practice. So, does anyone have any uh, questions uh, they'd like to bring up at this time?
3: <laughs> um, <coughs> I'm just wondering, uh, while we're practicing, and, and, you, and you, um, you refer to—I think you refer to, to making kind of note of things or um, having insights on a small scale while you're while you're sitting with your breath. You, you mentioned that, especially the, the the phase of practice where you're, you're sustaining focus on the breath, but there's still other mm-hmm. mind noise going on around it and that that could be a really good time to start to notice patterns in your, in your own thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed to improve throughout the day, but I've noticed just in my daily practice more that when I'm trying to make note, um, I can slip into a lot of discursive <coughs> thinking and, and analyzing and all that. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you just could speak to like, balancing that better so that you, you can make note and all that um, and not just have that you know, complete mm-hmm. fixed, fixedness on the breath, but without getting lost in over, overthinking what you're trying to make note of.
0: Yes, uh, I think that uh, the best thing to do is to try to just be open to noticing these things. Uh, you know what I mean? If If you are very focused on the goal of Uh, sustaining your attention and doing the practice properly you can completely fail to notice these things so rather than thinking about them or analyzing them uh, more than anything else it's a question of just having that open awareness and letting the understanding of these things uh, happen by itself while you're in the process of meditating there will be you know you are thinking anyway, right? I mean, That's part of what's happening while you're meditating, is you're thinking anyway. So to a degree, uh, you will, as you notice these things, uh, that will take the form of a thought. And that's all right. It's better that you're thinking about what's actually happening in your mind at the moment than thinking about something uh, quite different. So if you're going to be thinking anyway, better that than something else. But the only thing is is don't make that shift away from primarily meditating to uh, just sort of meditating while you're primarily noticing and thinking and analyzing. you, you understand the difference <clears throat> there? Yeah,
3: and that it will naturally unfold. I mean, that? That the mind will naturally yeah. reach the conclusions it needs to reach. The, the,
1: the mind will
0: naturally assimilate these things. And the mind will also naturally... Generate thoughts and commentary about that. You know, the little voice in your head is going to make a commentary about these things as they're noticed, and that's fine, because it's going to be commenting, commenting on something anyway. So that's fine if that's what it's commenting on. It's just you don't want to become any more caught by that thought than if it was a thought about something completely unrelated to the moment. Okay. That's a good question. Okay. thats
2: In terms of the dullness again, that dull stage, um, is that naturally also? Would it be natural to feel like that was a really boring, like I am bored and frustrated in that? Like, is there, is this all there is? Kind of question. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of feel (laughs) just saying that,
0: but (laughs) yeah. Well, that's that. Yes, those kinds of questions. what happens if we just look at the whole process, you you're focusing on one thing and you're shutting out all of the normal stimulation that comes not just from the senses but also from your thoughts, your plans and things like that. So with all the normal stimulation gone, the mind relaxes, which is good, but it also tends to slip into dullness and move in the direction of sleep, which is all your life what you've done when you've turned your attention inward and you've sort of stopped attending to things. So it's it's entirely to be expected that it does that. But then you're in this situation where what you are used to doing at a situation like that is either going to sleep or doing or thinking about something more interesting, and instead you have set the intention not to do either one of those. And so it's only natural as well. You know, keeping in mind that the you that has set that attention is is not some monolithic thing and your mind is not a monolithic thing, thing So there's other parts of your mind with different priorities and different impulses. And that starts to manifest in thoughts of, you know, like you say, is this all there is? Or or is there psych if, if we're gonna If we're going to do this, can we do it in a more interesting way? Or you know, uh, gee, this is boring. Or this is frustrating. uh, You know, I just keep having the same thing happen over and over again. I keep bringing my mind back. You know, so those kinds of thoughts are very natural as well. Um, Ideally, what you can do is to recognize all of these things for what they are, which is just distractions. You know, they're they're in the same category as every other uh, type of distraction, whether you know it's a an ache in your shoulder or, a, or a, a, a noise that makes you start thinking about something or thoughts about something that happened yesterday. It's it's in exactly that same category, and so is the feeling, the feeling of boredom and frustration, and this and this is part of the noticing is that yes, this is this is how my mind behaves. This is this is what my mind does. And um, so, when you recognize that, and then instead of feeling <coughs> like, "Oh, well, well, I'm bored, I should do something <coughs> about it," or "I'm bored, I shouldn't be bored. I have to make the boredom go away." You just let the boredom be there, the same as you would uh, an extraneous sound or something that you can't do anything about it, you let it be there, and you try to meditate in spite of it the same thing with uh, the boredom and the restlessness and the questions that come up you know they are they constitute part of the hindrance of uh skeptical doubt of the five hindrances and that will take many forms and it comes up over and over again throughout the practice you know uh it comes up uh when uh, you're, you're trying to establish a practice and you have this inclination to procrastinate or something that seems more interesting that uh, you could do with this time, and you experience uh, that resistance. Then at that time, you're also very vulnerable to questions of doubt coming up. And any time in your practice, it you know you have without uh, you, you've allowed expectations to arise and you're not quite meeting those expectations, and The way our mind normally responds to that, you try to do something and you're not successful at it, is there's a sense of failure and blame, and then doubt is actually a way of trying to ease those negative feelings that are coming out of expectations that haven't been met. Can you see how that's the case? The the form the doubt takes. The doubt will. The doubt will be, you know. Well, maybe I can't do this. I'm just, I'm just not good at this. Or maybe this is a waste of time. Maybe this isn't worth doing. Or maybe the way I'm doing it's not any good. And it'd be better if I quit trying this and went and learned some different way to do, you know, a a different practice. All of it takes so many different (laughs) forms. But in every case, what your mind is trying to do is to resolve what is being experienced in the moment as a problem. Uh, You are trying to do something, it's not happening in the way that would make you feel satisfied, so you're experiencing a, a feeling of dissatisfaction, and that's uncomfortable. And so your mind, your thinking mind, your information processing mind gets to work and says, oh, it's my job to resolve this state of satisfaction and so one of the ways it does is by examining the different parameters and generating doubt about them you know uh, uh, well uh, the basically reasons why reasons why maybe you should abandon uh this practice that's creating the situation of dissatisfaction but the most valuable thing uh, the most valuable thing you can do with all this is recognize what that is see it for what it is and let it be because you realize, oh well, yeah, of course I'm going to feel that way, rather than identifying with it. And it's and it's subtle. Uh, other other feelings are easier to objectify in some ways because they are <clears throat> stronger. But the feeling of boredom or restlessness or impatience, it has it's subtle and it's very easy to identify with that, rather than saying, oh, there's a a, a mental state of boredom arising. My, my mind is generating this quality of, of boredom that is flavoring my experience at the moment. Instead, it's I am bored. You know, it's that identification with it. And it's hardest to deal with when you identify with it. It's easiest to deal with when you separate yourself from it. And you can. Even while you're, even if you fail to recognize this and even identifying with it, you can, through uh, self-discipline, uh, just keep persisting in the practice and bringing yourself back and struggling against the the boredom and the restlessness and and the doubt and whatever feelings and thoughts come up and. Uh, I think, that, I, I think that that does work to some degree, but it's by far the least effective way of doing it. It's far more effective to recognize that, oh yes, this is just another mind generated thing, it's just another distraction, uh, and it's really no different than a sound or an ache in my knee or something like that. And that what I came here to do was to just do the practice until I enjoyed the fruits of it. And in terms of what <coughs> overcomes doubt, which the, the boredom and the restlessness feel, feed and are related to, what, oh, in, in, in the uh, technical description of meditation the way it's done in the Theravada, is the five hindrances are lined up with five jhana factors. With the idea that this hindrance is overcome by this jhana factor. And uh, I've noticed that not all teachers follow the same system that I learned and that I'm telling you, but you'll find this often in, uh, if you uh, pick up a book on meditation, there will be discussion of the hindrances and the jana factors uh, and the relationship between them. Well, one of the jana factors is sustained attention. And that's the one that overcomes skeptical doubt, in other words. Uh, you continue the activity, and it's actually the success that will come from continuing to to do the practice that overcomes the doubt. So it's just, <laughs> and the same thing related to the doubt is um, uh, resistance and procrastination that's another one of the hindrances uh, or as it's often described uh, sloth and torpor it makes you feel sluggish and sleepy and you don't really want to do this And uh, you know related to that and the uh, the jhana factor that opposes that one is directed attention you know so to overcome uh, this pair of hindrances of, uh, of resistance uh, resistance, laziness, procrastination, sloth, and uh, its relationship with skeptical doubt is directed and sustained attention. It means you just keep directing your attention back to the meditation object, sustaining it there until it moves away, and then you direct it back again. And that will actually, when you come to the point that the attention is just naturally, automatically redirected whenever it starts to shift. It just kind of comes back automatically. And when it's easily sustained on the meditation object, then you have very, very little problem with these. Although the doubt does come up at other stages in the practice for for different kinds of reasons.
4: I have a question going Mm -hmm. back to dullness. yeah, that sounds like a lack of mental acuity um, yes. and not boredom uh, or maybe it's also boredom but is there any aspect of that in dullness because dullness and boredom <coughs> sound to me to be not exactly
0: the uh, they, there are two different things and they they can and often do occur together but they often do not occur together either the the dullness is it's exactly as you say it's a a lack of acuity, a lack of vividness and intensity in perception. Uh, it's really uh, more than anything else. It's a decrease in the energy level of the mind, which is why, which which is why your perception loses its sharpness and its vividness and that quality of, of acuity, is <coughs> because the energy level of, of the mind is falling. And of course, as it continues to fall, it, it uh, turns into drowsiness and then finally into dozing. So that's the that's the dullness part of it. Mm-hmm. So when we when we talk about dullness, uh, I think maybe the most helpful way to think of it is really in terms of the energy level of the mind. Now if your mind's too energized then you have monkey mind and it's all over the place and you just can't bring it in. When you don't have enough energy you start to experience a dullness. So the dullness is a reflection of a decreased energy level of the mind. It manifests as <clears throat> it manifests as, as a decreased in acuity of, of perception, and that's that's the earliest sign of it that you can detect is when you're you're not observing when when you realize that you're not observing the sensations of the breath. With the same clarity and vividness that you were a short time ago, you know the dullness is beginning to set in. And the other side of that, what you, what we're trying to cultivate, is mindful awareness. And mindfulness. Excuse me, I had a, I ate just before I came. <laughs> anyway, uh, mindfulness is the opposite of that. That's. That's a fully alert aware mind that's taking it all in and you know it's right there getting every bit of it it has a high level of, uh, of of acuity and vividness and intensity to the perception and this is what we're cultivating the natural tendency of the mind is to the energy level of the mind to rise and the uh, the level of alertness and and, and the level of conscious awareness, fully conscious awareness that we have, tends to go up in certain kinds of situations where there's something that really interests or fascinates us or or, uh, promises us great pleasure and satisfaction, or is dangerous, threatening, and things like this. The mind becomes very alert, aware, and and quite attentive to to, uh, details. But the other ordinary behavior of the mind, if there's nothing terribly fascinating or rewarding or dangerous or threatening around, is it tends to sink into dullness. And so we're trying to cultivate in meditation, the, uh, train the mind to remain in a state of heightened awareness. That's what we want, is heightened awareness. And dullness is the enemy of that, uh, and dullness Dullness is uh, the natural response of the mind when we begin to concentrate. When we begin to succeed in turning inward and staying on one thing, then dullness develops. And so you need to to counteract it at that point. And there's two levels of dullness. Uh, Strong dullness will just continue until you become (coughs) sleepy and then drowsy. You get into a dreamy state and then you start dozing. But you can. There can be a subtle dullness. It's very pleasant and just can can be kind of sustained, and that's the one that is. Uh, uh, it's very important to recognize that because a meditator can get into a state of subtle dullness and think, "Oh, I'm having a wonderful meditation. My mind's not wandering anymore, and oh, I feel really good, you know." And it's very very comfortable, but they they won't be able to achieve the. Uh, the positive benefits of the practice because they'll just be stuck in that state of uh, of pleasant dullness. Now the boredom the boredom is often associated with dullness for two reasons. One that I just said that uh, we recognize the dullness as undesirable and we re- and we, we resist it. and so the reaction of the mind is, is or, well, you know, this is boring. Why, why are we doing this? Um, what you'll notice about dullness is it is pleasant. If you allow yourself to sink into dullness, it's pleasant. Pulling yourself out of dullness is unpleasant. When dullness is very strong and you pull yourself out of it, it's almost painful, right? Is is it not? Anybody that hasn't had that experience. Of, Pulling themselves out of dullness, and it's it, it's almost painful. It's definitely unpleasant, because you'd much rather just surrender to it and sink into that dullness. So there's the pleasure, and, and the, there's the pleasant part of it. And uh, so when you're pulling yourself out of it, it's unpleasant, and the mind's resistance. and And so the boredom is really a... An emotion. You see, uh, all of those things that we call emotions—actually, uh, the name for them is is, is very appropriate. An emotion is a mental state that propels us to take some kind of action. You know, fear, anger—all these things that we call emotions move us. Emotions move us. We. Stay just right exactly where we are forever if uh, uh, we didn't have emotions that moved us in one direction or another. Boredom is an emotion. Boredom is an emotion that that, uh, tends to propel us into seeking more stimulation. And so it is the normal reaction of the mind in a situation where there's nothing strongly of interest. And you're not allowing yourself to uh, to enjoy dullness, so boredom often is the mental state that arises but not always there's other ones but that's the reason they're not they're sometimes associated but not always associated you see yes
2: in that sense wouldn't boredom be a good thing if it propels you into <clears throat> bringing more energy to your Attention. Yes, if
0: if boredom propels you to find a way to take greater interest in in the meditation and the practice in the observation of the uh, of the breath. And this is one of the things that makes the breath <coughs> a, a very good meditation object. Is that if you choose to, you can find a lot of different things to take an interest in in the breath it has a lot of different qualities and they change and the breath as a dynamic thing also changes uh, in response to your mental states and so you can observe the breath and observe your mental states together you can, you can have an increased awareness of the mind itself as a part of the breath meditation uh, another kind of meditation object that people rarely use nowadays uh, at least in uh, in the West, but uh, was, was at one time used was a casino, which is it's basically just a blank-colored field, and that is really challenging in terms of finding some some way to take an interest and engage in. You know, if you can imagine, uh, a typical casino, you know, would be a disc about this big, and you place it a couple of feet in front of you so that it almost feels your, fills your visual field, and it's all just one color. So tell you, imagine taking that as a meditation object, and when you start struggling with dullness and boredom, <laughs> where you go. The breath, breath does allow you to, uh, there's more to engage in in those sensations and in the relationship between the breath and the mind. Um, also, the breath is very suitable for, uh, for helping you to gain insight. Uh, at all these different levels. Um, that's another direction I could go, but first, let's just yes. Yeah.
3: I just wanted to follow when we talked about <coughs> the mind getting overexcited, and you mentioned well, you mentioned lots of strategies for dealing um, with dullness, like opening your eyes a bit or clenching your body. When your mind gets kind of frenetic, like today, I had a few uh, sits where it was just, I, I couldn't figure out how to bring it down, <coughs> and I tried opening my eyes a little bit, That mm-hmm. helps helped somewhat. But are there any other good strategies for when your mind's just really high energy?
0: Uh, when your mind's really high energy, well... Because
3: um... <coughs> I just, I couldn't get a toehold on, on the breath. I just mm-hmm. couldn't find a, mm-hmm. my footing.
0: Well, you have, because of your past experiences, you have uh, a, an, an awareness of what it feels like to be relaxed and peaceful, and your mind is, is calm. And so, uh, recollecting that and and formulating that as something as uh, something desirable that you would. Like to experience can help together with, with relaxing physically, and generally that kind of activity of the mind. If you don't, if you don't uh, feed the energy by allowing yourself to pursue some of the the thoughts and things that come up, it will take care of itself in time. So, uh, just that's probably the most important thing to do.
3: Okay. think because the trouble I, maybe it was because I'd already kind of let down my guard and gotten caught up in some of the thoughts mm-hmm. that I couldn't it was really difficult to put a, put a stop to it so I could restart what I was doing like uh-huh. I, just to just to, just to put a pause there yeah. so that I can transition back into falling the breath or do anything productive yes
0: okay now I do have a, a, a suggestion that <clears throat> I, I think works really well for that anytime you, your mind is is, is wanting to go somewhere else and very energized or for that matter if you've had an extended period of mind wandering as a matter of fact anytime you've had a, a period of mind wandering that's lasted more than you know more than a few seconds if it's lasted for a, a minute or longer before you go back to the breath just come back into your body become aware of your body sensations just you know. Get as fully as you can into bodily sensation and out of mental activity and just be just be right here and then sort of draw your awareness in and back to the sensations of the breath so um, and and I like I said I would recommend that not just in the case that you just described which it will help with quite a bit but um, what I think you said led into that is that you had let yourself get caught up in some thought processes. So, uh, Any time you feel like you've been away from the meditation object for, for a significant length of time, it's worth uh, becoming centered in the body again, and in that process you know, you, you can't really pay attention to thoughts, you can't really think and feel. Uh, at the same time. It seems like you can, but I mean, if you experiment with it, and do experiment with it, you'll notice that the more you get in the feeling, the less space there is in your mind for thinking. And so bodily sensation is a really good way to extract yourself from a mind that's really getting busy with thinking and and thoughts. Not that it won't go back again you know, 30 seconds later and you might have to repeat the process, but it does help you to help to bring you out of that Thank you. while we're on this topic of the energy level of the mind there is a point uh, most especially when you've gotten to where you don't have very much mind wandering anymore but there's still a lot of mental activity and a lot of awareness of external sounds and bodily sensations present but even though you're not really forgetting the meditation object and that's the point too where the dullness starts to come in you're not you're not forgetting you're not mind wandering the mind's still active and then the mind starts sinking into dullness and you realize in that stage that that you're really trying to walk a balance if your mind becomes a little bit too energized those thoughts that are there in the background can become in the foreground and then carry you away and cause you to forget the meditation object and of course if you if the energy level falls a little bit too much then you're struggling with dullness so you're trying to find a balance between those two and you can you know you can deliberately move one way or another if you feel like you're shifting, starting to shift into dullness, just be more aware of everything else around you. Without thinking thoughts, just kind of be more aware of the thoughts that are present in your mind. That will automatically lift you out of that dullness and into of a more alert and wakeful state. It um, goes the other way, though, that uh, you're starting. if you're starting to feel a lot of agitation is to is to try to move towards that really pleasant feeling, uh, even letting a little bit of dullness be there to help calm your mind down and quiet your mind down. So you you can just sort of go back and forth while you're trying to navigate between the two extremes, keep from falling off of one side of the road or the other. But... When you feel yourself getting too close to one side, then you can kind of move over the other way. And if you get too close there, come back. And it's a really interesting experience to realize that you have that kind of control over the energy level of your mind. Does this bring to mind any other questions or thoughts?
4: The experience of having at times the low energy level and yet having the activity of the high energy level where I'm you know the monkey mind, etc where they're together which sounds you know,
0: well now when you say low energy what is it that has
4: um, like maybe I'm uh, drowsy or um, or more in the dull stage um, at a moment. And then and at that same time, I have sort of racing thoughts. So, I mean, it sounds like one is the high energy level, one's a low energy level. Okay. But, yeah.
0: Well, to it's me... Not, to, it's not my yeah. one
4: of my better moments.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to me, this is, I, I think, just one of those examples of how your mind isn't one thing and, and, you know, we talk about it it uh, as if it is and we can talk about raising the energy level or lowering the energy level of your mind as a whole but it really isn't a whole Mm -hmm. and sometimes that will become apparent Physiologically um, there is a, a a part of your brain stem that sends all these nerve fibers up to the cortex and that's basically what wakes us up and makes us alert and uh, it it will activate certain parts of the cortex that have to do with thinking or or other activities kinds of activities of the mind and um, what happens when uh, the mind starts to calm down. Is that that? That's called the reticular formation. It stops stimulating the cortex so much, and so the cortex can uh, starts to become quiet. And then there's other fibers that go from the cortex down the reticular formation that can stimulate a center there that will actually inhibit the cortex, and that's where you go to sleep. But it can happen that some part of your cortex is highly active in spite of that Uh, I probably all had those occasions when you had something on your mind that your mind just won't let go of and you may be totally exhausted you may it may be four in the morning and you're so tired and you 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 want to go to sleep. You know, you feel this. You feel the sleep wanting to overtake you, but there's some part of your mind that just keeps churning away, and it keeps you from from uh, keeps keeps the sleep from happening. And to me, what you're describing, you know, I I think I've experienced that too. uh, But definitely sounds like the similar kind of thing. I think that we've all experienced trying to sleep when we've had something on our mind. Is that? uh,
4: Yes. Does that, yeah, that resonate might, that with...
0: That might be it, yes. Yeah. So. But in any case, yeah, I just to go back what, to what I was saying, Is it's it's easiest to talk simplistically as if we energize the whole mind or, or de-energize the whole mind, but we don't really. There's different parts of it, and sometimes we can become very aware of that.
4: And the act of energizing the mind is simply doing the practice and um, being aware of the fact when we're, um, when the energy level is decreasing just um, by intention mm-hmm. and, and awareness? Um, is that, yeah. I mean,
0: yes. Um, your, your mind is tremendously a creature of habit, but it's totally trainable. That's the wonderful thing about our minds. Mm-hmm. They're so trainable. Uh, and so much of what our minds do is is automatic. It's habitual patterns which uh, we have trained ourselves into, and so that, that means that we can train new patterns in. So, if when you're meditating, you know uh, you've sat down to meditate within that context, if you always lift yourself out of dullness when it starts to appear. If you always re-energize the mind. After a while, you don't have to do that anymore. The mind just automatically, you know, it doesn't keep you from falling asleep at night or becoming drowsy in other situations. You still do. But there's now this new pattern established because you did it by intention over and over again, you know, a few thousand or tens of thousands of times. It became trained into your mind, and so now it becomes automatic when you sit down to meditate. And um, this is, you know, actually, this is the promise that lies on the other side. When you get to that stage when the mind doesn't wander and then you start experiencing dullness, after you work your way through dullness, you will very rarely deal with strong dullness as a problem. I won't say never. I uh, eat eat a big lunch on a warm afternoon. Go sit down and meditate, and yeah, you, you will. But it will become so much less of a problem than uh, it otherwise would be because you've trained your mind, and now there's some unconscious automatic mechanism that just keeps your mind from slipping into dullness. It's quite wonderful. It's actually the same thing with uh, directing and sustaining the attention. All that, all every single time you keep directing the attention back and sustaining the attention, you're training the the uh, parts of the mind that have to do both with uh, causing the wandering and also training the parts of the mind that bring the attention back and sustain it. And so the payoff of that is after a while, that happens by itself, and concentration becomes effortless. You sit down to meditate, and it takes. Very little effort to establish the state of concentration, and once you've established it, it sustained itself. You know, it's it's quite wonderful. <laughs> in the uh, in the ten stages of, uh, of development of meditation, um, uh, this it's in the seventh stage that uh, you can stay on meditation object in a very focused way for long periods of time <clears throat> but um, if you don't remain vigilant and if you don't correct if your mind starts to drift or if dullness starts to come in you know you'll lose that quality of concentration and the, in the eighth stage, that's effortless concentration. So it's in the seventh stage when you're just constantly making <coughs> corrections when there's the tiniest uh, tendency of the mind to lose the concentration that leads to that state of effortlessness. And then when your mind is effortlessly concentrated, then that allows uh, these, uh, the... Physical pliancy, uh, pleasure in the body, uh, the mental joy—that's uh, often described as rapture and happiness—that these these spontaneously arise as a result of that. It's actually as a result of your mind becoming unified and calm and collected. But as long as you need to keep guarding against your mind wandering, and as long as there's that subtle agitation of the mind under the surface that creates that as a possibility. You might have fleeting feelings of, uh, of of joy and happiness, and you might have strong energy sensations and things like that. And you might you might have periods of varying lengths where uh, you have a lot of stability and a lot of focus, and, and the joy is there. But as long as 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 long as you still have to be exerting an effort to maintain your concentration. And as long as there's some kind of subtle agitation beneath the surface of your awareness that is necessitating that you're not going, it's not going to be able to develop fully. And uh, and so that's in the progress of meditation. That's how it goes. That you uh, you do reach the point where these automatic processes take over and it becomes effortless. And once that happens, then you experience very strongly these um, these meditation experiences that uh, you, you may have heard about and that you may have had some short, brief experiences of from time to time. It's a question of bringing the training to the point where it can be sustained and where you can achieve it uh, consistently. Anything else? <laughs> was a question, I guess somebody put this on the bulletin board, and it really fits in, in a way, with some of the things we've been talking about here. <clears throat> uh, the person that writes this, uh, you mentioned benefits, uh, insight in teachings of Mahayana and Theravada. Is it too much to ask to discuss the benefits? It's not too much to ask, but... Uh, so, I've answered the question. No, oh, that's not. I <laughs> that was more to the question, or <laughs> are, are, are more to the intention than that. Is it too much to ask to discuss the benefits you have combined in your teachings and what they offer to us? I think the question is, uh, if I understand it correctly, is about uh, in what I'm teaching you. Uh, The benefits that have come both from traditional Theravadin and the Mahayana uh, teachings on meditation. It's a very good question because I do that. I I weave them all together. What what I find is that that each of uh, as these schools of Buddhism grew and developed in uh, some degree of separation and isolation from each other uh, and their methodologies developed and then as uh, the teaching methods that went that along with that developed, that uh, the uh have uh, done some really beautiful descriptions elegant descriptions of certain Aspects of the process of developing concentration and insight, and uh, likewise have uh, in in the methods they teach. There are certain aspects of the method that are very valuable and very uh, effective. But when you look at the Mahayana lineage and those uh, meditation practices, they've done the same things, but it's different things. And so, bringing them together is uh, is very powerful, um, and and I I blend them all very freely. <laughs> but an example, um, breaking the whole uh, path of progress of concentration development. Down into stages is something that comes from the Mahayana system. And uh, it, it was never dealt with very effectively in the Theravada system. Um, and the Theravada approach to uh, meditation instruction has always been very basic. You know, if you go to uh, uh, whether it's an insight or whether it's a samatha, uh, meditation retreat in the teacher who's teaching primarily according to Theravada method The whole meditation instruction will probably take about 10 minutes that's pretty basic you know put your attention on uh, the breath of the tip of nose or put the, the attention of breath on the abdomen and observe the rise and fall you know and, uh, and whatever instructions depending on the method go with that pretty basic you probably some of you, at least, if not all of you, have experienced that. On the other hand, if you go to uh, Mahayana, uh, more Mahayana style of meditation retreat, you'll find that there's literally hours of lecture on uh, the, the practice, <laughs> mm. you know, and you, you'll end up meditating maybe three or four hours a day, and listening to you know at least as many hours a day of talk. If some of you had that experience too, well. So, the Mahayana has laid out certain stages in great detail, and the Theravada has neglected that. And one of the things that I see. It came from that. Uh, most of the Theravada, uh, most of the Theravadin world, for uh, well over a hundred years now—well, no, I shouldn't say well over a little over a hundred years now—has been very focused on a particular method called dry insight or uh, suka vipassana, dry vipassana. And these teachers will often speak very disparaging of concentration practices and developing samatha and jhana. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And now that's a really odd thing when you consider in the Theravada, uh, what they pride themselves on more than anything else is that they have preserved the original uh, teachings of the Buddha in the form of the Pali Canon. And if you go and look at the Pali Canon, it talks about concentration and jhana, everywhere. There's thousands of references to concentration and jhana. And I think Vipassana as a a separate... uh, Well, it's never mentioned as a separate practice, but Vipassana in any kind of distinction is only mentioned in all of the sutras maybe two or three times, and so you scratch your head and wonder why this is the case. And I think it's related to exactly the difference that I just told you between the systems. In the staged development of meditation in the Mahayana, it's one whole stage is devoted to overcoming dullness. The fifth stage is all about overcoming subtle dullness. And it's recognized that this is absolutely crucial. And in that staging, it's placed at that point, you know, in that point in the training. This is the time to focus on developing, uh, on overcoming subtle dullness, and it comes before the stage where you develop single-pointedness. And the reason for that is that otherwise, subtle dullness, it gives you these nice, spacey, pleasant meditations, but produces absolutely no insight, and it doesn't really go beyond that. Uh, the meditator won't really uh, develop jhanas or, or anything else. and It seems that not pinpointing the danger of dullness in the Theravadan teaching was a weakness that over a long time I I think accumulated and and so concentration practices came to be seen as well you'll get addicted to the pleasant uh, state of uh, concentration and meditation but you won't you won't make any progress, and I think I think that they weren't making a lot of progress because if you in uh, many Asian countries, uh, not that long ago, it was believed that it was impossible now for people to become enlightened, and it was impossible for now for people to achieve the Jhanas. which is all completely uh, not true. But that's what had happened, and then in the late. 1800s uh, this dry Vipassana method uh, was uh, I can't say that it was discovered or invented and developed, it had probably been around for 2500 years but <coughs> it, it was only a, a few monks off in remote places that were doing it but Mahasi Sayada brought that method out, recognized the problem and taught people to do a kind of meditation that focused entirely on mindful awareness. So you can see that there's a certain advantage to the Mahayana systematically identifying the stages of development, whereas the Theravada was just, you know, hey, venerable so-and-so, you go off, there's your cell, sit down, you know, meditate, call me when you're enlightened. <laughs> Now, on the other hand, if we go and look, I know some of you may know Alan Wallace. Um, no. When he did his PhD thesis, uh, and he was uh, he was on the Mahayana side, the Tibetan Buddhist side, and he actually did his PhD thesis on the on samatha meditation, and. Um, so he did a survey of Tibetan Buddhist yogis and you know, the Dalai Lama and all kinds of other people. And they all agreed that yeah, almost no one really can develop Samatha anymore. It rarely happens. There's few yogis that have, have the, the diligence and the patience for it. interesting. And so you had both in the Theravada and in the Mahayana Tibetan worlds this belief that that Samatha and, and Jhanas were difficult to attain. And uh, now on the Tibetan side, uh, they also believed that, medita- that that people couldn't become enlightened anymore through Vipassana meditation. That was kind of a popular belief. And you still encounter vestiges of that. You know, But they said, but you still can become enlightened practicing the Vajrayana, doing the tantric practices. So they had another method. But now what I've discovered is that the same thing happened that in those stages of meditation that were so carefully laid out many centuries ago, they were taught in a very stylized way. It was pretty much incomprehensible. On the other hand, the one advantage that the Theravadins had is some of the nitty gritty details of what happened in the meditation pro- uh, process. Even though all the stages weren't laid out, you know, with the warning signs that you need to do this and don't try to do this before that and so forth. Even though they didn't have that. They had some very clear explanations and very clear teachings of what's taking place, uh, actually how certain kinds of meditation experiences our experience that the Tibetans were teaching in this, basically what they were doing. I, I, I heard some of these talks, is they were repeating sermons on meditation that had been written five hundred years ago by somebody that they knew who, who knew what they were talking about, but the person doing the teaching didn't. They'd never done it, <laughs> but uh, but they would give the teaching exactly according to the text. They would describe Kamala Shila stages of meditation using the same rather stilted and archaic language that was that probably wasn't stilted and archaic when these texts were written, but uh, nowadays it was. And, and of course, people scratch their head and say, "Oh, yeah, well, okay, that's that's what I've got to do. Yeah, I've got to practice that way." And they weren't having too much luck. So, so. I have uh, I, I thought bringing that the, bringing these two traditions together as uh, the meditation traditions is absolutely wonderful in terms of uh, the potential that I think it has for making for a far more powerful and effective system of practice and my personal goal is to to try to work that out you're all my guinea pigs <laughs> or at least anybody that's willing to stick with practice as I teach it long enough is uh, is a guinea pig. I got into teaching when I realized just how many people there are who had been meditating for many years, you know, and, and found it to be a positive part of their life, and had been to many many retreats, but basically had. Uh, neither mindful awareness nor concentration and nothing really, no insights other than what we'd have to describe as being very mundane. And and so this is what caused me to become interested in, in teaching and trying trying to teach people the method that, that I could learn. Because you see, I, I had the very great good fortune to have a teacher whose teacher uh, is recognized uh, as, uh, as a great teacher in both the Theravadan and the uh, Tibetan lineages. And so uh, I was exposed to both of these. Yeah.
2: Do you know a lot of people who have succeeded in the 10 stages um, uh, yes. of meditation? Uh, depends on what you mean by a lot. <laughs> just uh, for some sense of you know where are we in this big picture well if, 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 it seems there are a lot of people mm-hmm. who are struggling and not getting good instruction and I'm just curious yeah. if you know at least there are somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah.
0: there's one young woman who uh, really first started practicing uh, not much more than a year ago was it, was it April that she came in with that group to do the retreat here? Anyway, she, some months ago, was uh, practicing a 10th stage, and a number of jhanas. And uh, it was also a friend of hers that he'd also been meditating before I met him, but he'd been, he's been meditating with me since September. And uh, he's, he's a very solid 10th stage meditator and uh, but there's there yeah I, I when you say a lot I don't know about a lot but uh, a number I uh, and there's there's quite a few people I know that are at the more advanced stages quite a few people that are hovering between the seventh and eighth stages once once you make that transition to the eighth stage where the joy and the happiness arise then moving from that through to the 10th happens pretty quickly And so there's quite a few people that are just right there between seventh and eighth stage. They're capable of prolonged single pointed concentration. They have a certain amount of PT of uh, energy sensations, joy, and uh, other things that are associated with it, like illumination and things. But they're not consistent. Uh, and they can't be sustained. They sort of come and go and sometimes stronger and sometimes not so strong and sometimes not at all. But they're sort of at that point where any any day now they'll be moving.
2: I, I guess I meant also just, you know, colleagues and other teachers you've had over mm-hmm. um, a period of time. There yes. are several there are yes, lots of them
0: out there. Several. Uh, I like I say, it all depends on what you mean by lots. Considering considering how many people are meditating and how many different systems uh, there's very few (laughs) 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 but uh, if you started gathering them all together in one place there's there's enough to to uh, give all of you tremendous encouragement
3: Yes. Um, just while we're talking about um, the technique you're teaching, and I didn't write that note, by the way. <laughs> you, you bear with me, yeah. I said I didn't write the note, by the yeah. way, but it right. a good topic. <laughs> um, but I I was curious, so does, your, does the technique you teach differ just based on how you teach it depending on what stage a person's at? Because the technique you're teaching us now seems pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, are you talking more about kind of the detail you give or the way you frame it, how does it, I'm wondering which part, how it differs from just the strictly Theravada, except that you get more than 10 minutes, and mm-hmm. how, it, how <laughs> it differs from Mahayana, mm-hmm. or how they're combined. I'm just, I don't know if it's worth going yeah. into that.
0: Well, the people that I'm teaching in different contexts are at different levels of practice, and I've been finding this a, a real challenge, and most of the people that in the group that you're in are still you know uh, there in, in the early stages right? yeah uh, and so most of my teaching is uh, is devoted to overcoming those early stages so uh, what I would say more than anything else it's the recognition of the stages and the clear understanding that first you overcome the mind wandering and then you get to the point where you don't forget at all, and and then when you, uh, you you know the second stage and the third stage and then in the fourth stage, then you begin to focus on uh, uh, the distractions and you leave single pointedness until later. That's very much the Mahayana part of it, and the. The detailed help that I'm trying to give you in, you know, dealing with the things that actually, like answering the kinds of questions that we've had here tonight, you know, dealing with the kinds of things that actually come up and and the sort of challenges that you're dealing with in your practice. A lot of that is, it's come from my own experience, but I'm following the (coughs) the same pattern of in uh, the uh, later stages of the practice where the, the Theravada. Uh, examines a subjective experience in in some greater detail. So, I'm, I'm trying to put it into mm-hmm. subjective terms, you know, so that we, you, and I can talk on the level that we we both know what it feels like uh, subjectively when we close our eyes and we're observing the breath and uh, and and this one thought just keeps coming up and pulling us away. So I talk in those terms.
3: Mm, yeah.
0: Okay. and that's that's my that's my contribution to it
3: yeah.
0: Yeah. but the idea comes from you see the if you look at these early stages the way they're taught in the Mahayana you know it's uh, the, uh, you know, the there are five problems blah 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 and the first problem is forgetting and the antidote to forgetting is remembering <coughs> Well, I mean, that's all completely true. You know, yes, the antidote to forgetting is remembering. But if, if you're trying to learn to meditate and I say, okay, you're going to have this problem of forgetting. What I want you to do is remember. It's not going to help you a whole lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I mean. You know, in the stage that comes after that where you have, you have longer periods of time where you're with the meditation object, they can become quite long. There's just brief interruptions where, where you forget for a short period of time and then you come back. And in the Mahayana system, that's described as patching the gap, you know, and it is, that's a good description of it, patching the gap. But the information you're given to work with, just you know, it, it doesn't give you the nitty gritty tools of you know, okay, but how do I patch that gap? <laughs> so that's what I'm trying.
2: Thing. I, I guess I've um, always had this assumption that if a teacher is teaching meditation or they're writing about it and they're very knowledgeable about it, that they themselves have attained, <laughs> you know, attained what they're talking about. Should I just get that out of my mind?
0: <laughs> well, what I have found, I've, I've read a lot of books on meditation and the experience that I have is, I'll read along, and say, "Oh, this, this is, this is really good." In chapter five, and <coughs> get to chapter six, and I can tell the transition as we're at from this point on. He's repeating stuff he's heard and read, but he hasn't, hasn't had those experiences. It's so obvious
2: to, to you. Yeah,
0: so obvious to me. And I I see that in uh, so many of the books on meditation. Mm-hmm. And then the other kind of book on meditation that you get is that it's basically a rehash of ancient texts, and you can never tell what the writer has experienced himself or not, because uh, there's, there's been a certain... Uh, it, it's kind of a tradition to uh, for the teacher to try to present everything as having come from from the masters of the path, you know, and to avoid interjecting any of their own experience or knowledge or things like that into it, I think that's a huge mistake. Um, so when you get a book like that, you can't really tell for sure. Like, well, I have a pretty good idea. There's there's one teacher, gonna uh, gunaratana uh, and uh, he's uh, He's a Theravadan monk from Sri Lanka, and he's he's created uh, uh, wonderful meditation centers on the East Coast, and uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., there's a Vihara there that he took over when he was much younger. And I feel quite confident that he probably has a lot of personal experience and personal knowledge of advanced stages of meditation. But when I read his book, and it's very popular book, uh, two books actually, he wrote one on Vipassana and one on on concentration practice um, he is so careful not saying anything new <laughs> he goes out of his way not to give you any new information that isn't contained in all kinds of uh, other texts older texts you know, so. and that's that's the way the tradition has affected some people so you can't always tell for sure But in many cases, uh, people become teachers, and, and they start teaching, and that doesn't, you know, you, you, the, the Buddha had that experience himself. He, the first teachers that he went to, he mastered everything that the first one had to teach, and, and his teacher said, well, we'll become co-teachers here, you know, you can be, you could be leader of my flock as well. We'll do this thing together. And he said, "No, thanks." And we got the next teacher and learned what he could from him. So yeah. it's always been that way. <laughs> it's not been new. Somebody reaches a certain point and they begin to teach. So how do you know? But. Whatever, whatever works for you. When you find that you are making progress and becoming more successful in your practice, that's really all that you can do. And I think there's a lot of value. See, what I find, I know what I know, and I know what I can do. But explaining it to someone else, that's, that's a whole different thing. Teaching is so different than doing. And. There's a whole lot of people out there that, uh, you know, the more teachers that you listen to and go to, the more different ways that you hear the same thing, then the more opportunity you give yourself to hear it in a way that you can understand and resonate with it. Um, so, so it's very worthwhile to do that. But uh, I'm, I'm my goal is to see if I can figure out the best way to to uh, help people to have the kind of experience that I've had. And uh, in a few cases, I'm successful. You know, and really the... Uh, it's very important to keep in mind... The, the, the end goal of, and uh, that, that the awakening. And the awakening, too, that's also something that not that long ago uh, people thought it was very difficult. Very, very few people could succeed at it. But quite honestly, I don't see any reason why uh, very large numbers of people can't succeed at it. It's it's not as it's not as uh, unattainable or difficult to attain as it can seem at times. Far from insurmountable. What you're doing when you're <clears throat> meditating, even when you're just learning to focus the mind on the breath. <clears throat> what it's about. I mean, uh, the root of the spiritual path. Uh, it's so ancient in every culture know yourself it's about discovering what is what what's really happening what what is all of this who am I what am I why is this what is this right that's what the spiritual path is about and of course you can't examine yourself and you can't examine what's happening if your mind is going all over the place it's just it's simply impossible You've got to try and train your mind to slow down and focus and stay awake and alert. And when you can begin to focus and stay awake and alert, then you start to understand yourself and you start to understand the world. And that is the path. And so you keep deepening your understanding until at some point you wake wake up to the reality that's there <clears throat> from the first moment that you begin to practice you close your eyes and you turn your attention inward on um, that is the beginning of discovering <clears throat> who am I and what is this mind right we identify very very strongly with our mind and this is putting you face to face with this thing that you call your mind. So as soon as you try to make your mind do something, and you see what happens, it starts to tell you something about the nature of the mind, <clears throat> it starts to tell you something about the nature of this I, the self that's doing the trying, especially when you start finding that there's more than one I with different points of view. you know. I want to learn to meditate. I don't really want to sit here and do this. (coughs) (laughs) The truth is being revealed constantly. And it's just a question of (coughs) training your mind and continuing to look until it starts to become apparent. That's the other thing that I think I've benefited from studying both the Theravada and the Mahayana is that So much is said about the true nature of reality, about emptiness and not-self and the nature of suffering and nirvana and things like that. And... You know, it's... uh, It makes it this huge accumulation of ideas and words and everything else can make it seem difficult to to grasp and difficult to experience and difficult to attain but it really isn't it's a question not of understanding hugely complicated things or achieving something that takes some huge amount of time and massive effort it's a question of of just of just plain seeing and recognizing what's in front of you and changing certain ways of, of thinking and acting and being. You know. It's another advantage that comes from seeing different traditions' points of view of this is is that you see? That they're both talking about exactly the same thing, but in such different ways. And it helps to see through the elaborate conceptual constructs that have been built around them.
2: Do you think there's been an intention to make it seem esoteric? Enlightenment seem a little out of reach <coughs> um, somehow.
1: Well.
0: I suspect that there has been in the sense in the sense that I suspect that for a long long time people who were not enlightened have benefited from the system of the teachings and and being supported by the world in it and There has been an intention to make it esoteric, so that nobody knows they don't know what they're talking about. And I, I would, across the board, in, in all the Buddhist paths, say that there's been a huge amount of that. You know, so.
2: I like it. You've talked about um, how Buddhism is discovering itself through different. You know, Zen is discovering all these different. Buddhism is looking at all of these different Buddhist
4: traditions, and that it's a time in the world where this is possible. Yeah. Talk about that.
0: Well, this is this is a most amazing time if you think about it. <clears throat> um, the Buddhist countries of the world, and therefore the Buddhist traditions throughout the world, until very, very recently, have uh, experienced huge isolation. You know, the only form of Buddhism that anybody would likely to know would be the form of Buddhism that's taught either in their village or the city that they live in, in the country where they are. And even in a country as small as Thailand, for example, there's several different variants of of the Theravadan Buddhism of Thailand, and of course in, in Tibet, quite a two, quite a few different variants of uh, uh, what we call Tibetan Buddhism. But a person would only be exposed to what was in their locale. Most of the, most lay people have been too busy working to support themselves and to support the monasteries, um, uh, to really. Have the time and the opportunity to penetrate deeply, either uh, in, in terms of, of study or practice, into uh, into Buddhism. So it has been mostly the the precinct of ordained monks and a few nuns. And uh, it's very common in Buddhist countries that people are ordained at a very young age in a monastery near the village or in the same neighborhood of the city where they grew up. And so there hasn't been a lot of communication. But look what we have in the United States. We have all of these different teachers from all over the world and all of these different traditions. And we have a highly educated, <coughs> highly motivated population of Westerners who didn't grow up influenced by any of these particular any any narrow sectarian point of view who are going and discovering all of this and comparing all of these different things. So I, I think that I think this is a time an opportunity for an enormous dynamic revival of Buddhism. I I think I you know time wise I'm sort of a forerunner because I happen to be in a position to be in a place where two very major traditions were were mingled, and I was exposed to both teachings. But as as time goes by, that's going to become much more the norm in this country. Is that people will spend some time studying with a Zen master, and then uh, maybe uh, study with a Tibetan master, and then a Theravadan master. And um, so there's a. <laughs> This is a wonderful time for, I think, the rediscovery of the deepest and truest nature of Buddhism. Um, The biggest danger to it is the same danger that I suspect has been there all along, which are um, people who Uh, how to put it in the nicest way? People who will use and abuse the Dharma for their selfish ends, which has the effect of spreading confusion and misunderstanding and false practices. And, um, this country has always been famous for uh, religious hucksterism, so
2: <laughs>
0: so that is a, that's a danger too. I don't know what the answer is I don't know where it's all going to go but it's going to be a lot of fun watching it unfold. <laughs> but you know if you if you take all this richness that's available different teachers and the books and things like that and If you look for the common truth that's in all of it, that is that is what will serve you best. And just just ignore those aspects which seem where, you know, when you come across a teaching that denies something and some other teaching, you know, just leave that alone. But where you see the common thread in all these teachings, look, that's that's the gold. That's the gold that you want to refine out of it all. And not just Buddhism. Advaita Vedanta is also a very, very powerful uh, method for achieving the same goal. Far less systematic than Buddhism, but uh, valid and and powerful nonetheless.
3: What is Advaita Vedanta without going too into detail? That's not Buddhism?
0: No, it's... uh, Is
3: that for Veda like Hinduism? Yes, it's,
0: it's... Would uh, the famous Indian masters that you might have heard about, Nasargadatta, Ramana Maharshi, and uh, uh, all those people—those are Vedantists, and most of them are Advaita. Advaita means non-dual, and uh, the the uh, uh, mind-only school of Buddhism defines emptiness as non-dualism. So, <laughs> I mean, they, all of these things. That's, that's what I say. You, if you look at these things and you start to see where they are talking about the same thing in different ways, that's where you can really learn a lot. Okay, well, I'm, I'm using up your uh, evening meditation time here.